You and Jessica have been friends ever since you two met at a book club 15 years ago. You just clicked, and the chemistry you have is hard to explain to others. The way you two speak to each other, relate to one another, support each other, it's like you're connected. It's telepathy. It's some kind of crazy chemistry. And maybe you have your brain to thank for that. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Tracy Alloway, an award-winning psychologist whose research on memory and the brain have totally wowed me. Her book, Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You, was a critical prerequisite for me to the book that I am writing about female friendship. I read this book in two days, highlighted virtually every other line, and totally fangirled over the opportunity to interview Dr. Alloway. Seriously, as you listen to the interview, you can tell I am not my cool, collected self as much as I am in other interviews. It's ridiculous. In this episode, I asked Dr. Alloway to elucidate some of her research about women's unique brains and how some of our wiring may impact the way we relate to one another. If you're a fellow nerd, this episode is so for you. And if you're not so much into neuroscience, something tells me that the insight Dr. Alloway shares is still gonna blow your mind. Let's get into it. This is Friend Forward, the podcast. And if you're having girl problems, I got you. I'm your host, Danielle Byer Jackson, a friendship coach, speaker, and author. And when it comes to the joys, complexities, and misconceptions surrounding female friendship, I am here to help you through it. Before I play the interview, I want to remind you that we'll be launching the Friend Forward Library next month which provides exclusive access to unreleased podcast episodes, challenges, homework, research, and private videos. You'll find some content from this very interview behind the walls of that private library. It won't appear here in the episode. So if that's something you're interested in, stay tuned for all the details at betterfemalefriendship.com. Okay, there's my pitch. Now here's my interview with Dr. Tracy Alloway. Okay, so I am so excited to have you here. I don't know if you have fangirls across the country, but you have one in me because I have told multiple friends about your book. I read it in two days. And so it's very exciting for me to be chatting with you today. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always nice to hear that. Yeah, yeah. It's so good and so rich and so full of of practical information. And I wanted to kind of explore some of the concepts with you as it relates to friendship, specifically female friendship. But before I I launch into a couple of questions, can you start by telling me why you came to be so fascinated and center your work around the female brain? Yeah, Danielle, thanks so much for that question. Um, As a research scientist, I get to both write and review a lot of scientific articles. And I kept noticing that a lot of times the data were presented with a broad brushstroke, kind of one size fits all. When in fact, as we know, there are a lot of nuances, both in structurally how our brains differ and as a result, how our behavior differs, but also functionally, how do we actually manifest and behave? And then I also wanted to look behind the curtain and see if some of the myths that either we hear or even we tell ourselves are actually grounded in how our brain works. Or are these just behaviors that we adopt simply because we've been told it is the way that it is? And, you know, as a a female myself and growing up in an Asian family, I I was definitely interested in exploring some of these different myths that, that I've heard in my life as well. Yeah, and and I'm so grateful for that because I know a lot of us are still operating with certain ideas maybe we've heard before, certain sayings, but maybe we're getting it wrong. And so it's so nice to have, you know, this this deeper insight with research to help kind of 
help us navigate friendship in the right way. So I have a couple of questions for you. I mean, there's so much good stuff in this episode. You know, our podcast is almost so short, but um, a couple of things that you touched on, and I love the way that you've divided the book. So you talk about, you know, in general, the female brain and like these hidden powers that we have of our brain. And you address everything from the stressed brain, the risk-taking brain, the romantic brain, and so on. And I wanted to talk to you about a couple of those as it relates to friendship. So the first is the emotional brain. We hear a lot about, oh, women, they're so emotional. And surprisingly, I hear that a lot from women as well. So we're saying that about ourselves. And when I'm in one-on-one coaching sessions with women, they say things like, you know, oh, I, I, I don't have as many female friends, but I don't know if I can relate to them because they make decisions so emotionally. And I think we have this idea of the weepy, frantic, emotional woman. And you kind of help clarify some of that for us. And so um, I know the cultural stereotype of the emotional woman, but can you help us to see a little bit of why our brains work the way they do with regard to emotional decision-making? Yeah, that's such a, a powerful image that you're describing and such a prevalent image that you're describing, Danielle, and certainly one that I've heard as well. In my research, I wanted to look at that in the context of stress behaviors. So oftentimes when women are you know, described to be emotional, it is in a very stressful situation. And I wanted to un- uncover and unpack and, and even just look at the accuracy from a, a sort of scientific perspective. And so I used a very uh, simple philosophical paradigm that's very commonly used both in philosophy and in psychology. It's called the trolley dilemma. It's made its way to popular media. Uh, some of your listeners may have come across it. You see this trolley hurtling down the tracks. It's going to injure one person or five people, you can save the day by switching the track that the trolley is on and only one person will be harmed. And what do you do? And so we know, first of all, in our brain, we have two decision-making pathways. We have what is called the cold decision-making pathway, the rational brain, where we weigh the pros and cons and we view it more utilitarian. You know, what, what are the cost benefits? And then we have what um, psychologists call the hot decision-making brain. That's the amygdala, the emotional side of the brain, the, the kind of, well, I can't make a decision. I don't want to harm anyone. And true enough, women tend to operate specifically in this type of very high-stress decision-making context with more of that emotional brain. But when I began to look at a little deeper and in my own research lab as well, I found that women are motivated by a protective mechanism. We don't want to cause harm. So imagine that shifts the conversation entirely. Women, when they make these decisions, aren't just acting because they're emotional. They're acting because they want to protect. They want to you know, reduce as much harm as possible. And I think that changes the whole outlook, knowing that the reason we make these decisions is because we want to protect. And sometimes that protection may even, you know, be centered on ourselves. But again, part of how our brain is wired is the sense of nurturing, generally speaking. And so that desire that may be perceived as being emotional is actually protective, which is a very powerful insight. Yeah. And that's so such a relief to know and to hear it framed that way, because I know sometimes for some women, there can be uh, shame around that when we're told you're, you're too emotional or you need to stop thinking so emotionally. So to hear you kind of frame it in a way where we see the power of thinking the way that we do and some of the motivation behind it is so helpful um, to understand ourselves and how possibly we relate to, to other women when maybe we get into conflict or we're trying to make tough decisions about our friendship. Should I stay? Should I go? Um, it's really helpful to hear the bigger picture. I 
love that. Um, let me ask you this. When it comes to risk-taking, there's a lot of risk-taking involved in friendship, even once we get comfortable with someone, but whether it's how to bring up a tough conversation and whether or not we should, whether it's time to exit a friendship, whether we want to approach a woman who seems like she'd be really cool to get to know, we're always nervous about what that looks like, about uh, potential rejection. And so there are a lot of risks that we take both entering into and navigating and, and releasing friendships. So with that in mind, how do women calculate risk differently than men do? Yeah, such a great question, Danielle. And it's true, the scientific literature is rich with this notion that men tend to be more risky than women. And in part because the way in which researchers measure risk are very uh, external activities that are adrenaline rich, you know, the kind of skydiving, motocross racing. And it's true, women tend not to engage in that type of risky behavior. But when risk is framed differently, such as maybe in the context of friendships, maybe in the context of moving across country, women equally engage in those risky type of behaviors. And so I think, first of all, the, the myth about women not being risky in their decision-making is flawed because of the way in which we define risk. So we certainly are risk takers, but the, the difference here is that women will calculate risk quite differently. And we bring emotions into this. So I've had you know, both many conversations with women as well as the research demonstrates demonstrate that for women, they look at the emotional payoff, not necessarily the, the benefit is, you know, financially, those, those may be factors, but for them, the largest weight is resting on that emotional payoff. So in other words, I've had women share that they will, you know, move a young family across country, embark on a new job, maybe even leave an existing safe job. And I say that in quotes, you know, a kind of a guaranteed job to be an entrepreneur. These are risky decisions. But for the women that choose these decisions, they don't view them as risky because for them, that emotional payoff is so great. And it's almost so when they step back and look at their life as a third person observer and think, wow, I did that? I gave up that job to pursue this passion of mine? That is risky. I didn't even realize that because I was so focused on the value that I would receive from you know, pursuing that, that decision. And so I think for women, understanding just that knowledge and that insight can help you stop and think, well, how do I feel about this decision? What is that emotional payoff I'll receive from moving across country, entering this friendship, pursuing this relationship? And just knowing that, that our brain puts a lot of weight on that emotional payoff is an important piece of insight. Yes, it is. And, it, and it's so helpful to help us better understand, like you said, how we relate to one another and how we maybe are approaching things that that might include rejection, might be perceived as risky to others and what we weigh as being beneficial and worth it. And so it's so helpful to have like that full context. Um, when it comes to to bonding, you know, we see in the media these, these depictions of really strong, really intimate and connected, you know, female friendships, which is so nice and we love to celebrate here. And even though it's something we we feel and a lot of us are very familiar with and we're currently experiencing with our girls help us to understand what's happening behind the scenes what's happening in our brain when we are feeling connected to one person maybe more so than another what does that look like in the mind Yes, so the hormone of the neurotransmitter associated with bonding is called oxytocin. And this is the hormone that just you know shows up right at birth when the mother and the child start bonding. The mother shows a spike in oxytocin, the, the child, the infant responds. This is demonstrated throughout early childhood, even when the mother is 
cooing and engaging in this kind of early speech patterns. There's lots of research that measures oxytocin in the mother. Typically, the mother is the primary caregiver and infant, although not to discount the, you know, the involvement of the father as well. There are, there, there are studies showing a rise in oxytocin between a father and an infant as well. So early parent relationships set the framework for our bonding experience. It is interesting to know that researchers find that they call this attachment style. So if you feel secure, you feel safe with your parent, this forms the framework for our romantic relationships and our friendships, even in adulthood. So oftentimes when you hear, you know, both men and women saying, why do I end up with the wrong person? Or why do I find a partner that is so emotionally unavailable? Why can't I connect? Why do I feel so needy? These kinds of phrases, these statements reflect an attachment style that is often grounded in our early childhood experience. So, for example, if we had a parent that was distant, that was emotionally unavailable, we learn skills or strategies to be anxious. We create, you know, oh, if I if I say that I don't feel well, that my stomach hurts, that my head hurts, then I will get the attention of my emotionally unavailable parent. And so we learn these behaviors and we tend to carry them into our friendships. We feel like if our our friend is be, is you know being distant, maybe we send them a text saying, oh my gosh, you won't believe what just happened. So crazy. I need you. You know, that kind of, that, that bid for attention that may not even be conscious. It's just a pattern that we use as a default based on how we learn to bond as a child. And again, that knowledge as an adult can be really helpful. It can help us know, wait, hang on, Am I reaching out to my friend, to my partner, because I genuinely value their interaction? Or am I reaching out because there's a need in me that is not being met, that hasn't been met, and I'm just, I need someone to meet that need rather than finding a more healthy path to, to you know, to have that emotional stability. Yeah, I love that. And and help us understand, you know, when we, we do come together and we nurture and support each other and we leave feeling like, God, yes, I needed that. What is the relationship between oxytocin and, and stress? And, and we see it, the illustration that we often see, the image of that is, you know, something stressful happens and then we go and call our girls and we're like, oh my God, you will not believe it. What's working behind the scenes there when, when we feel stressed and we feel compelled to, to seek our friends out and, and talk to them to help us kind of center ourselves, you know, how is oxytocin operating there? Yeah, such a great question, Danielle. So we know that when women approach a stressful situation, we adopt what's called a tend-befriend mechanism. So your listeners may have heard of fight or flight, which is a typical male response in a stressor. They want to either, you know, get on it like head on or they kind of back up and they disengage and like, I can't talk about it right now. But women have a different approach and that's tend and befriend. And as you mentioned, we call our girlfriends, we call a support group, we want to talk it out. And that's a very healthy approach. And we know from research that oxytocin, so in, in bonding, will decrease cortisol, a stress level. And this can be manifested even with a hug. Research has found that a 20-second hug, which can seem like a lot if you're not close with someone, so choose wisely, you know, who you want to hug. But a 20-second hug was found to show physiological de decreases in our stress hormone, our cortisol uh, levels, and an increase in oxytocin. Another uh, study found that even talking with someone about a stressful event while hugging, you know, that action of hugging and putting your arms out and feeling something close to you was sufficient to increase oxytocin levels and decrease cortisol or stress levels too. So a couple of pathways to use oxytocin to our benefit when we're experiencing stress. Hug someone or hug a cushion. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 sounds about right. It's those things that maybe some of us are doing, but don't really understand why does this work or why do I feel compelled to do this? And so to hear that there's a lot going on, you know, in the brain helps to make sense of it and and to direct us into how to operate, you know, moving forward in those situations when we are feeling stressed to call our friends. I know some of us are reluctant to because of, you know, all the other things that we sometimes think, I don't want to burden my friend. I don't want to impose. I don't want to look needy, you know, and all these other things. But to hear you speak to how it can actually be very helpful to engage in those relationships is um, is encouraging. That's awesome. I also wanted to ask a little bit about the empathy brain. You You speak hear a little bit about what that looks like, what empathy is, and how women tend to to operate when it comes to empathy. And you also speak specifically to something called ruinous empathy, which is interesting because I've seen firsthand how that plays a role in, in some of our, our friendships. And so can you explain to us what empathy is and, and how it functions? And then ruinous empathy. I think the interesting thing about empathy is that it's a learned behavior. Oftentimes we think of empathy as something we're born with, you know, like like our height, um, you know, you're either tall or average or short. But empathy is a learned behavior in the same way that we learn a language. We learn English. We may learn another language. This is a skill that, again, we learn how to mirror each other's actions. Again, it's said in childhood often, but it doesn't preclude us learning the skill even in adulthood. So we watch how other people react, we mimic that. And our brain has something called mirror neurons, like the name suggests, we mirror the emotions that we see. And ruinous empathy often comes into play in the workplace, whereas women, we are so attentive, again, this need to protect, we can be so focused on this need to protect that we can overcorrect in some instances. So instead of providing helpful feedback to uh, individuals in our team, we wanna protect their feelings so much that it results in ruinous empathy. It, it prevents us from allowing our colleagues an opportunity for growth. So they may say, well, how was that report? How did I do my project? Oh, great, great, you know, you're awesome. Instead of being able to say, you did a great job in one, two, and three, I think four and five could show improvement in these areas because we're so concerned about protecting their feelings, protecting you know, their, their kind of job and their perspective of how they're performing that um, researchers have come up with this idea of ruinous empathy, where too much empathy is actually a negative thing. You know, I'll, I'll end with this. What Are there any other things you feel like we should know in terms of the female brain or stereotypes about the female brain or how we can kind of harness the power of the female <laughs> brain for our relationships? Is there anything else that you feel like is worth noting? I think just an important thing to keep in mind is our mental health too, and that our brains in this case are wired differently. We have more neurochemicals. We tend to ruminate or overthink more uh, in part because of how our brain is wired. And I think, again, having that knowledge, whether it's related to friendship or situations and being aware of that, again, is that first step. If you find yourself thinking about a friendship in a, in a negative way and ruminating, did I say the wrong thing? Should I have done something differently? Um, even a simple technique is just reminding yourself, saying stop. And having that response, like, stop overthinking. What can I do instead? Oh, even if you want to express gratitude instead of saying, yes, but that friend always is, say yes, and that friend is, you know, lively, is energetic, and is great for the times when I want that little energy boost, that positive interaction. So it's changing our words instead of saying yes, but to yes, and regarding our friendships and also recognizing when we're overthinking or ruminating aspects of our friendship by saying stop can be helpful, uh, helpful ways to navigate when we find ourselves in that, that ruminative cycle. That's so good. And I'm, I'm telling you now, I know very confidently that women listening, you just saved 
several friendships with the insight <laughs> that you shared because we can go, we can take this, we can self-reflect, put it in action. And I'm sure it's going to, to help those of us who are maybe on the edge or misunderstanding each other. And it gives us some tangible things to, to put into practice. So I, I so appreciate that. You know, I, I like I said, I, I love this book for women listening. It's called Think Like a, a Think Like a Girl. I read it in two days. That is not an exaggeration. It was so good. And it's got all, you know, I, I, I'd share my copy, but it's got like, it's all marked up and, and it's got the dog-eared pages. And so I just I just enjoyed it so much. For women who are listening who are so intrigued by the things you're sharing, where can they follow along with you, your insights and all that you have going on? Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words, Danielle, about the book. I have a website, tracyalloway.com. I'm on social media, doctor, that's Dr. Tracy Alloway. I'd love to connect with your listeners. I'd love for them to reach out and, and share their thoughts about how their brain's working too. All right, ladies, as your new official friendship coach, here's your homework. Listen closely. Dr. Alloway speaks about how while men are perceived as risk takers in comparison to women, it turns out that women take a lot of risk as well. They just look different. I want you to think about one thing you can do in your friendships that feels like a risk this week. Weigh the costs and the benefits and then take action on that. This might look like following up with a new friend who seems interesting, but it feels like too much time has passed to do something about it when she maybe thinks you're a random weirdo if you were to follow up, but you're gonna go for it anyway, right? Maybe it's possible that she is relieved because she wanted to link up too. You you don't know unless you take the risk. Or maybe you can reach out to attempt to rekindle an old friendship and you can learn exactly how to do that on the first episode, I think, of season three of this show. Either way, I want you to identify an opportunity that you've been avoiding because it feels too risky because now we know our brains were made for this. Just take the leap. Use the power of your female brain to calculate a friendship risk. And then this week, just go for it. Then I want you to come and tell me all about it on Instagram at friendforward. Until then, you know that I'll be right here rooting for you always on your ongoing journey toward better female friendships. Until next time. <laughs>